Good morning, Machias family. Yeah, so I've been in and out a lot. Uh, last week, I was down at uh, Lake Taps preaching, and um, I'll be down there again next week. Just to let you know, we're going to be praying here in a minute, but I want to have you lift up their church. Chris Kramer, who came here and just graciously helped fill our pulpit when we needed him, is down there as well. And um, he's about ready to go on. I, they are very structured in their service, and so about 10.30, he's going to start preaching. So when we pray, I'm going to be praying for them as well. I'm getting a, a real big echo. You guys, are you getting it? Uh, there you go. Anyway, so lift them up, will you? They're going through a tough time, and just the same way we needed some help here, they need some help there, and so um, I'm going to be going down there, and Chris Kramer's going to be going down there, and um, they, they really do covet your prayers. What a neat group of people, and Pete, their elder chairman, and I got to spend some time together. What a wonderful, wonderful man. So anyway, we lifting them up, if you would, while we pray. Um, this was Thanksgiving this week. Um, it was difficult for me to be thankful. This has been a very, very tough year. Um, I mean, I hate to do this, but Carol and I kind of went through the lowlights <laughs> of all the things that kind of happened in 2022. And... There were a lot, and they were hard, really, really hard. And so I'm going to share this, and it has nothing to do with our sermon today, but it has everything to do with the gracious goodness and provision of God. Because this is a verse or verses that I've preached on. I actually preached on in Skykomish. I preached on here. Uh, and I have to keep going back to them, and I'm not going to do the whole thing, but I'm going to read you from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 3 through verse 6. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power to the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this... In those things. So as I was looking for something to be thankful for, I couldn't find many things around me in my circumstances of this life, but I could go here. I don't know why I needed to share that, but I did. Because it goes on to say in 7, no, in 6, In all this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Um, that's where we need to go, people. That's where we need to go when this life gets too hard. Okay, so now we're going to go into 1 John. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, and I got to share that last week at Lake Taps, and, um, you know, I, Ron Salih, who's here now, he had a, an amazing influence on me, and so I kind of share this everywhere I go, because I say, the first thing that we are taught to say is, turn with me in your Bibles, and why do we say that? 
Why do we say that? Because, and this is shocking, it's shocking to me. How many people come to me or have come here and have said, this is such a great church because you preach right from the Bible. And you would think that would be the norm, but evidently it's not. And so when you start your sermons, as Ron taught us to do, when you say, turn with me in your Bible, it's because you are turning to the truth that actually can do you some good. Because I have nothing for you outside the wisdom and the life-changing Word of God. And so that's where we're going. We're going to go to 1 John, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1, Verse 1, all the way through, yep, I think I can get there in about an hour and a half, um, to 2. Uh, so this is kind of a, an, an interesting situation. Ken and I have been doing the contenders how to study the Bible. And so the very last section, which is actually pretty long, is you go through 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 2, and you go through the all five steps of the Bible study process. How do I study the Bible to come out with a conclusion of the Bible says one thing and only means one thing, and that's what I'd like to come out with. Now, I won't go through all the steps because we don't have the time, but we spent an inordinate amount of time looking very closely at 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 2. And there is an amazing amount of truth in it. Um, the, the, the word that the modern preachers and theologians like to say is unpacking. We're going to unpack this verse, these verses, but... We can't. There's too much in there. So we're going to leave a little bit of meat on the bone for you to chew on later, but there are some amazing things in this passage. I'm, I'm going to structure it this way, and I'm sure there's been many, many, many sermons preached on this passage, but my structure here is going to be this, and that is that there is hope and warning in this correction. So let me give you a little bit of background because, Ron, was that one of the steps that we would go through? Yeah, we, we, you're going to look at it in its context and understand why are they writing, who's writing to, and what, how would it have been understood by the people to which it was written. So this book was written by John. First clue, it's called First John. So it was John, probably John the Apostle, brother of James, although some think maybe it was John the Elder. But nonetheless, it was written by one of the apostles that actually was with Jesus during his ministry. Okay, and so it was written at the very end of the first century. John is, one of the, is the only apostle that wasn't martyred. And so here he is at the end of his life, and he's looking back, and he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of John, and Revelation. We, we believe through uh, historical uh, scholars that this probably was written from the church in Ephesus before the exile to Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. So sometime probably around 90 A.D., John was writing this. Now, many of these things we call epistles or letters, but actually this, instead of really being a letter, is, is probably more a, a series of sermons or podcasts in the, our vernacular to correct some things and to give some instruction. And so uh, this was very helpful to me as we went through this process. Why is it that this is being said? And this again, how many of you have heard, I'm sure you have, I say it all the time, 
God works all things together for the good of those who've been called, uh, those who've been called according to his purpose, right? So, do you believe that? I hope you do, because it's the truth of Scripture. Now, I oftentimes go through things, and I'm wondering, God, how in the world are you going to use this? This is so bad, so ugly, so sinful. How can you possibly use this to good? Well, there was something going on in John's time, and there was a group of people called the Gnostics. And Christianity is no more than 60 years old, probably, from the time that Christ uh, died and then ascended back into heaven. And within John's generation, within his lifetime, this massive error is creeping into the church through this group we call the Gnostics. And that was from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on that so you can understand why John is writing certain things to counter the error of the Gnostics. But just looking at that saying, here is something that you would think from the outside and is really, really bad and evil. And we're going to talk about why it is so bad. How could God possibly use this false teaching for good? Well, what he did, and there's a number of times he did this in Scripture, where he said, I am going to use the correction of this thing to impart my knowledge to future people who are going to read it. So we're the beneficiaries of John correcting false doctrine. And within that correction is both hope for us in a warning for us not to do the same. So we're going to be looking at that as we go through. So let me just tell you a little bit about the Gnostic heresy. This is a group of people that came from Eastern mysticism, and they were looking to do something different. Now, I'll just start with that. Why do you think false teaching and false doctrines happen? What is it that people are trying to do? I think it's, it's, it's mostly two things. They're looking to gather people around themselves. Hey, look, I've got something new. I've got something better. Come over here. Uh, you're already in this group, but guess what? Come over to me. Come over to me. I have the answer. And that's pride and that's selfishness and that is humanness. That is our humanness. And the second thing I think why these things crop up, and we can see it in our own particular generations, especially now in our culture, is people are looking to justify the sinful things they want to do anyway. And so we see that. We'll see that in Gnosticism very, very clearly. These Gnostics are looking to gather people to them. Hey, look, Christianity is good, but we have even better over here. Come to us, come to us. And they were usurping the power. Most of the churches that John was writing to were home churches, probably. They didn't have big buildings like we do. And so people were getting into these home groups and pulling people away to this new Gnostic religion. So let me give you some high points or low points, if you want to call it, of the Gnostic heresy that John was dealing with so quickly after Christ left, which is kind of dis discouraging, I'm sure, for him to see 
and have experienced the things he did and then see how quickly error crept into the church. So basically, their philosophy was this. All matter is evil. Everything that we see is evil. And so couldn't have been created by God. It was actually created by a lesser God called a demiurge because God would never dirty his hands actually creating something from evil matter. And so everything that is is bad. Everything that actually has time and space and you can touch and feel is evil. Therefore, Jesus was never really a man. Jesus was simply a messenger, like an angel, in spiritual form only, bringing us this special message so that we could escape this evil trap of being in a body because really the only thing that matters is your spirit. Okay, so everything that's in the flesh really isn't even you. You could just say, well, that's something that this evil thing that this body does, but here am I, and I'm pure, and I'm, in the, and I'm in the spirit, and I need to be liberated from this evil body and this evil world, and then I can transcend that and go back into the heavenly place and be who I truly am. So they believe there was no bodily resurrection. They believe that Jesus only seemed to have a physical body, um, that God did not create the universe, and that human beings are merely droplets or sparks of God's spirit, which are housed in evil physical bodies, and they're trapped, and they need to be liberated. And salvation is not forgiveness of your sins. It's freedom from the physical existence that we experience now back into a spiritual existence that we'll have later. Okay. That messes with two things that are really, really important. One, it messes with the person of Jesus Christ. And that's bad. Because there's only two things. We talked about it in Sunday school. There's only two things that's going to happen, and both of them are bad, and one of them is really bad. One of them is you're not going to be saved. Because the Jesus of the Gnostics doesn't save anybody. The Jesus of the Mormons doesn't save anybody. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness and Islam doesn't save anyone. Unless you are serving and believing and have faith in the Jesus of the Bible, you are not saved. And when we start messing around in other aspects of the person of Christ, you're at least going to come under God's judgment and his discipline. So neither one of those are good. So John, in the first four verses, is going to tell us something that's really amazing. And that is, who is the person of Christ? And we're going to borrow a little bit. From, from the, the Gospel of John as well. So he starts out. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning. Now when he says the beginning, he doesn't just mean, okay, this is, was the starting. He is talking about that and that that he's referring to as Jesus. And in the beginning is not just a time, it includes time, but it also includes what is most preeminent, what is most important, what is most majestic. In the beginning, that thing, that Christ was there with God. In fact, we're going to see that. Let's just skip real quick right back over to John, the Gospel of John, and we'll see John's description of the Jesus that he's trying to correct from the Gnostic version. And it starts out like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, and in him is life, and life was the light of men. We're going to see those things, light and life. And light is a metaphor for all that's pure, for all that's good, for godliness, for purity, for holiness, for sanctity. And it is a metaphor for eternal existence in fellowship with God. We're going to see darkness is just the opposite. Light and life are almost synonymous in this example. And then he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so there, darkness is a metaphor for that is on the opposite side. And there are two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of evil and this kingdom of Satan. And there's those that are saved and those that aren't saved. And there is a dividing line between the two. And you cannot have one foot in each. And we're going to see that in 1 John. So John is describing in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of light, the logos, the, the perfecter of our faith. When he says the word of life again, this is talking about Jesus. He had the very word, they call it the logos, the essence, the knowing of eternal life. And he saw it. He saw it. And, and when it says we saw, we touched uh, we heard he's talking about physical senses. He was actually there. He was an eyewitness. He saw the things that Jesus did. He saw the water that was turned into wine. He saw beggars who came up to him and were healed of their leprosy or healed of their blindness. He saw Jesus and Peter walk on the water. He saw Jesus stand up and calm the waves. He saw him raise a person from the dead. And why did he do those things? Because he was confirming to those around him that he indeed had come and he was God. And that is important because only the Jesus that's God can save you from your sins. So he said then in verse 2, the life was made manifest. And what that means is it was made apparent. It was revealed. This life, and he's not just talking about Okay, there was something that was alive. He's talking about eternal life. This life, this Jesus, was made manifest and revealed to us. And we have heard, from, I'm sorry, uh, we have seen it and we testify to it. And when he says we testify, it is the Greek word martureo, which means to testify as in court, as an eyewitness. So he's saying, look, I saw this, it happened. This is not some legend. This is not just some, some religious fable. This actually happened. The God-man came here. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. And I saw the things that he did. And I heard the teachings that he had. And I am now going to relay that and testify it back to you. That which we have seen and heard, we've got to flip it over to three. We proclaim to you, or we announce to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that, look, 
I am telling you this. And, I, and here's the Gnostics. And they're telling you Jesus wasn't God. They're telling you Jesus wasn't in the flesh. They're telling you that Jesus was just a messenger. And let me tell you, I was there. I saw it myself. I am an eyewitness. And if you want to have fellowship with us, when he says us, he means the family of God. If you want to have fellowship, and that's that koinonia word, and it has so many meanings. I mean, I think it's Ron come up with, I think, 20 different ways they use the word koinonia. But it is so inclusive, and it means fellowship. It means partnership. It means being a part of. It means communing with one another. It means being in the essence of. And so he's saying, if you want that, if you want fellowship with us, and when that us means God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God, if that's where you want to be, then you have to worship the Jesus of the Bible. You have to place your faith in the Jesus that I saw. You have to place your faith in the Jesus that's God, because no other Jesus will save you from your sins. And that was the lie. That was the Gnostic lie. That was the correction that was being done by uh, John in this word. I have to redefine for you who this Jesus is because if you aren't worshiping the right Jesus, you aren't saved. And when you stand in front of God, it's going to do you no good to worship of some sort of messenger that came with some special word so that you could move up to the spiritual elite. Okay, so that was the correction. That was, that was him trying to say, no, 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 look, there's only one Jesus. And if you don't get the right Jesus, you're out. So I look at that and I say, okay, I get the correction. What's the hope? Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? He's telling us that we can have fellowship with one another and with God when we recognize who Jesus is and accept him as our Lord and Savior. So we definitely don't want to mess around with the person of Jesus. We have to be worshiping the, the Jesus of the Bible. But that is our hope. Our hope rests in Jesus. Our, hope, our only hope that we have is that Jesus did what was necessary to reconcile us back to God so that we could enjoy once again koinonia with one another and God. That was our original design. God designed us to have intimate relationship with him and with one another. And when the world was broken, when the fall happened, every one of us was separated from that relationship with each other the kind of relationship, the kind of intimacy that we can only have as brothers and sisters in Christ and with God and our only hope of having that restored, which is what God wants for us, is through Jesus. That is our hope. And so even though he's correcting this false narrative about Christ, he's also explaining to us what our hope is. Now, what's the warning? There's a warning here for us too. Now, probably... Not many of you, I hope none of you, have ever worshipped a different Jesus. And, and, and you're probably not going around and telling people, yeah, Jesus is just a prophet, or Jesus was just a man. And you can research, if you want, the Jesus that's described in Mormonism and the Jesus that's described in uh, many of the other cults. And you say, yeah, yeah well, I'd never believe that. I'd never believe that. But are you worshipping the real Jesus. And I don't, I don't mean to say that we have a different version of Jesus, but I think there are aspects 
that even we as Christians, even we as sincere saved Christians, as we look and we say, well, I would never, I would never take away the person of Jesus. Let me tell you what the Bible says in Acts. As Peter was giving an explanation about the gospel. And at the end of it, he said, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God, this God that you love and know, has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Savior and Lord. And so I look at my own life and I say, well, yeah, I'd never worship the false Jesus and I would never spread around a word of the false Jesus. But am I really embracing the Jesus of the Bible? Because not only is he your Savior, he's your Lord too. And so I think for me the warning here was, if I'm going to worship Jesus and accept the salvation part, then I also have to understand the Lordship of Christ and make him both Savior and Lord. Because he is. In fact, it says in in, uh, Philippians chapter 2, right, at the very end of this wonderful passage at the beginning, and it says, and when that time comes, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord, whether you accept it or, or understand it or not doesn't matter. But, but in order for me to really understand and appreciate and get the benefits of Christianity, not only do I have to accept Jesus as my Savior, but I also have to accept him as my Lord as well. Now, we talked this morning, and we were going through Ephesians chapter 2 in Sunday school, and this subject comes up. If you read that passage, you'll find out, well, what is this life change, and where does it have to happen, and why is it important? If, if, if truly I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone, then does it really matter how I live afterwards? What do you think? If I'm going to worship the true Jesus, who is both my Savior and my Lord, then Jesus being Lord of my life means I am no longer in that position myself. That I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that I died with him, I was made anew, raised to him, but now I belong to Jesus. And everything that I do should glorify him. It doesn't earn you your salvation, it doesn't keep you your salvation, but what God wants for you is holiness. For you is holiness because he designed you to experience and enjoy this intimacy with him. And we're going to see that when we don't make Jesus both Lord or Savior and Lord, we can be tempted to dabble in sin, which we're going to talk about. And what does that do with our day-to-day relationship with one another and with God? Okay, so that's the warning That was the correction, and that's the hope in these first four verses. Okay, whoops, I went too far, I think. Five. So John goes on to say, because what they were also messing with was the message of Jesus, not just the person of Jesus, but what did he say? And they're saying, look, it doesn't matter how you live, because that's how Gnosticism worked. Basically, they said, look, you're a spiritual being, and so anything you do in the flesh doesn't matter. In fact, it's not even really you. It's it's just this evil thing that God created, and it's not really you because you're just spirit, and so you can just go on ahead and in this world live it up. 
have fun. You know, sec- sexual immorality, you can just indulge all of the pleasures of this world. And it doesn't really matter because that's not really you. And so what were they doing? It's, 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 there's two ways that, uh, that you can skirt what God wants from you. Number one, you can say, well, I don't accept it as truth and I'm going to come up to another truth. Or I can say, that's not really me. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. And the Gnostics were doing both. They were saying, look, it doesn't matter. I don't care what Jesus said. These things that you're doing in the flesh, number one, it's not even really you. And two, let's just change the truth to say what we wanted to say. Now, how much of that do you see going on in our world today? Let's just redefine what truth is in general. I can have my truth, and you can have your truth, and they can be contradictory, but that's okay. That's nonsense. There's one truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there's only one path back to where you need to be to be reconciled with God, and that's through me. And so we do that. So the warning here and the correction here we're going to see from John is, guess what? There is a message, and it's truth. So this is the message that we heard from him, meaning Jesus, and we now proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, the kingdom is divided and that's it. And we can't have one foot in each side and say, guess what? I can be a Christian, but I can walk over here in the dark. No, because he's saying there is no darkness in God. When you enter God's kingdom... You may still have a sin nature, and you may still be battling with it in this life, but God's kingdom, there is no sin. In God's kingdom, this thing that is God, he has only holiness. That's why unholiness and sin is so offensive, and it has to be dealt with. And there's only two ways of dealing with it. God is either going to punish you, or God is going to forgive you with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But somehow that sin has to be dealt with because God is absolutely holy. We've heard that progression before. Because God is absolutely holy, no, he does not wink at sin. Everything has to be accounted for and paid for. Since God is absolutely just, that payment will be demanded. But since God is absolutely loving, he paid the price himself for those whom he called. And so that's where we want to be. And John is trying to tell them there is no darkness. You cannot dabble in both sides. You cannot justify being over here in the dark. And we're going to see when he says that. He doesn't mean just stumbling. He doesn't mean just falling, which we all are going to do. And Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 and this thing that's going on and how I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do and the struggle that we have with our sin nature. And God understands that. And he's going to, we're going to talk about that as we get to the end of this passage, how he deals with that. But what he's talking about is now no longer walking there. God is in the light and there's no darkness in him at all. So if we say that we have fellowship with him in that koinonia, if we say I'm one of God's, that I am in there intimate with God and I am part of God's family and we walk in darkness and that walk That walk has a particular meaning, and it means to, it is, you're going to get the root word of this pretty pretty quickly, parapet, I'm I'm really bad with this, Uh, Parapet. parapet, thank you. 
And that doesn't mean tripping and wandering into sin. It means I have decided it's okay. I'm just going to go walk around in my sin because guess what? It doesn't really matter. God saved me by grace. It doesn't matter if I sin or not. God died for them all. Right? Oops, I'm walking out of the camera thing probably. They're probably going to put a leash on my leg one of these days. It does matter. John is saying you can't do that. And in fact, why can't you do that? Well, number one, God gave you his Holy Spirit. When he saved you, he put it in there and with an expressed both the intent and the ability to transform you back into the image of Christ. But number two, God says, I love you. I saved you not just to keep you from being punished by me, but I saved you so you could be restored back into full intimacy with me. Why would you ever want to walk around in the pig pen when I've taken you out and brought you into my family and my kingdom? It doesn't make any sense. And yet here were these Gnostics telling people that was the thing. So John has to correct that. Okay, But what's the hope in that for us? So it says, if we have fellowship with him and we still walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's our hope. Not not that by our performance, okay, if I walk in the light, Jesus is going to save me and cleanse me. No, no, that's not what it says. Basically, that is the result of being saved. And you can't walk around in the darkness. You're going to walk in the light. And when you are in the light, you are under the imputed righteousness of Christ. You have been cleansed. And then we're going to get into the next section. And we have to understand the difference between practical righteousness and positional righteousness. And so I think... He's telling them, okay, I have to correct this error of the Gnostics, and I have to say, here's the deal. You cannot do this. You cannot be living this kind of lifestyle and truly be a child of God. So either one of two things again. Either you are not saved, or you are in rebellion to God, and you're going to come under God's discipline, and it's not going to be good. One of them's really bad, and that's being outside the pale of Christianity. But the second one is bad as well, and that is if I continue as one of God's children to walk around in darkness, God is going to do something about that. Why? Because he's angry at you? No, because he loves you. And holiness is something he wants for you, not from you, and he's going to lead you back into the light. And most of the time, it's... That's the sound of Tim's head as God has to get his attention with trials. Mostly it's been trials. And you know what? I found God has been very effective at turning me around using trials. Know that that's what will happen, but that is the hope that we have. We as parents know if we don't discipline our kids, we really don't love them. And is it pleasant? Probably not for the kid. And and really, every once in a while, I took some pleasure in it. But nonetheless, most of the time, I didn't like it either. But I loved my children enough to do the hard thing, to be the tough love guy. That's God. You are, the, you, you are the child of the God of tough love who, when we walk around in darkness, 
will discipline us. Not for a punitive thing, but because I love you, dear lamb. You're wandering, and I'm going to come get you. And sometimes, you know, when it says, thy rod and thy staff comfort me in Psalm 23, you know what those are? Those are the things that... I'm going to drag you back into the, into the fold here. And sometimes my rod is boom, boom, boom. You're going to have to be disciplined. But they comfort me because God loves me. He loves me enough to discipline me. So, but he's saying, look, you don't have to wander around in the dark because guess, mm, that's going to happen. Because God loves you. That's our hope. God loves us enough to discipline us out of the dark and bring us back into the light. Don't go there. Don't go there. And then it's, he gets into the last section. Uh, so God knows we still sin. John has gone out of his way to correct us to say, you know what, it does matter. You can't live in darkness and be a child of the light. You just can't. You're either not a child of the light or God's going to correct you. But listen, God knows you still sin. Now, it's not walking in sin, right? It's not, it's not embracing sin. It's not living a life of continual, unrepentant, unconfessed sin. It is, okay, I'm still a work in progress, and I am going to fall. I am going, and God says, I know that. And guess what? I still love you, but I have an answer. But you can't do this. You can't say, no, I'm not. So that's another Gnostic heresy. I didn't sin. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. No, that wasn't me, God. There's you, you know, this, this evil part of this thing over here, which is not really me. But don't we say the same things? Well, that wasn't that bad, God. You know, it's a little sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quantify the sin, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up. Yeah, I, I don't do this really bad. I don't, you know, I don't kill people. I don't steal. You know, I do all those other things. But, you know, maybe I did a little bit of pride thing. Or, yeah, maybe I didn't quite tell the truth all, all the way. Uh, maybe I was a little selfish in my dealings with my family. Ah, that's okay. God understands. God understands it's really hard to walk the Christian life and, meh. No, because living a life of unrepentant, unconfessed sin breaks the practical fellowship with one another and with God. That's that difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Positional righteousness says, God saved me. He, he uh, redeemed me. He changed me. He gave me a new heart. And I am positionally forever at that point. I am in God's kingdom and no one can ever take me out. And I am completely covered with the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at me, he sees his son. He sees perfection, his standard. And that's who I am in God's eyes positionally. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm still sinning. That's practical righteousness. And God doesn't say, well, that's okay, it doesn't matter. Or I, I don't care about that sin because I've forgiven them all, right? And then we can fall into it and we look at, okay, what's the warning for me? The warning for me is I can fall into that trap to say, well, I'm saved, doesn't really matter. And that free grace movement within Christianity that's pretty popular right now is, God saved me, he knows how hard it is to live right, but doesn't really matter because he forgives them all. says right in there, my sin is like, you know, from east as far as from the west, and, and that he's forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future, so it doesn't really matter. It does matter because it breaks practical day-to-day -day fellowship with God and with each other. We know 
I'd tell you, but I'm not going to. Um, What does it feel like to be living in sin or living sin as a Christian? It's not pleasant, is it? All of us know that. Okay, so God does not want that for us. We recognize when we are living a life of unconfessed, unrepentant sin that there is a barrier in our day-to-day relationship with God. And he says, look, I, I, I don't want this because I'm angry with you. I want you to be in good, pure fellowship with me. And in order to do that, you need to be constantly, constantly repurified. And here's how it happens. It says, if we confess our sins and repent, there should be a little parenthesis, and repent, right? He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Aren't I already cleansed? Well, positionally, yes. But on a practical basis, we have to keep short accounts with God and not live in unrepentant, unconfessed sin because it is breaking fellowship with God, and I need that every day. Then if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Once again, this is a correction for the Gnostic heresy to say, eh, it wasn't me. But what is the blessing? What is the hope? Both eternally, positionally, and practically in this life, I can be cleansed by Jesus. And all I have to do is take my sins to him, confess and repent, and I'm washed clean again every time. You could do it right now. Now, I'm not going to look around and see who might be closing their eyes and say, oh, there's a sinner. But do it. You can do it right now. If there's unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life that's keeping your relationship from God separated, Take it to him. Because it says right there, he's faithful. Now, if I came to someone or if someone came to me and asked for forgiveness and confessed things the same amount of times I've done it for the same stupid things over and over, I'd be done with you. I would. It's like, come on, get your act together, you loser. You've asked... Forgiveness for that one like 200 times. God is faithful. I'm not, but he is. God is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to be honest or we're liars. Then finally it says, my little children, I write you these things so that you may not sin. Now, hold it. Isn't he just saying, okay, don't walk around in sin, but I know you're going to sin, and don't tell me you're not sinning, because if you do, you're a liar, but I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. Is he saying, well, if I write this to you and you really listen, you're never going to sin again? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying so that you understand you can't walk around in it, but... When you do, and if it's like this is like, if anyone does, is it going to be a shock when people do? No, he's he's not saying that. But if you do, no. When you do, here's the hope. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He is the propitiation. He is the payment. He is the atonement. I said this, and I probably got myself into trouble at Skykomish. I say this, and I've said it a number of times, but then i got to remember, if you don't clarify this, you're going to really sound bad. Because here's what I said. I said, you know what? God has no problem with your sin. And if I left it there, I'd be in trouble. Because why does God have no problem with my sin? Because he fixed the problem. He paid for them. He sent Jesus Christ to die, and it covered the penalty for my sin. Do I have a problem with my sin? Absolutely. It breaks fellowship with God. Does God want me to sin? No. Does he hate my sin when I do it? Yes. Does he ignore it? No. He understands it. He sees it all. He's not surprised. He's not confused. He's not disappointed because Christ paid the price, not just for us, but for the sin of the whole world. Now, this is another one that we can get sideways on. Does this saying that God paid the price for everyone and so universality is the, is the doctrine that eventually everybody's going to heaven? No. But what he's trying to say here is that Christ paid the price for all of God's children from the beginning to the end of time. The error was that they weren't worshiping the right Jesus and they were trying to change the rules. The hope for us is we worship the right Jesus and God has paid for our sins and I can be cleansed of my sins on a daily basis by confessing and repenting. And then we know that we have an advocate with God the Father. Jesus is up there, and I don't, I mean, it's, it's easy for me as a human being to kind of put this little you know, vision of it, right? And I don't know. He, God's not really sitting. He doesn't have a body. He's not sitting on a throne. And Jesus isn't sitting at his right hand because I don't think he's sitting down. But here's what I envision, and I think it's right. You know, here I am, and I'm sinning, and Tim, one of God's children, does something that God doesn't like, and God sees it. And he says, hmm, that was bad. And Jesus says, ah, he's one of ours. I covered that one. Now, I know he doesn't really do that, but he did do that. He did cover him. And so he is there with the Father. Nope, that's one of ours. He's covered. Nope, that's one of ours. She's covered. Nope, that's one of ours. Together we will fellowship. So what do I need to do? What's the conclusion of this? Number one, I have to know the truth. We don't want to be like the Gnostics or we don't want to be like the, the churches who were misled by the Gnostics because they didn't know the truth. We just finished how to study the Bible so that you could have the tools to know the truth of God. You have to first know the truth to be in the truth. Know the truth. Love the truth. Because we, we, we get to the truth and we read it and we say, ah, I got to that one that said, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. I don't really want to love that one, God. 
I don't want to love that one. I don't get it. And then you tell me, be joyful always. What are you, crazy? But that is part of the truth. And I have to embrace and love that truth that God wants me to be joyful. So we have to know the truth to not be deceived. We have to love the truth. And then we have to strive to obey the truth by submitting ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit so we can be transformed back to the image of Jesus. And just like confession and repentance, that has to happen every day. Submitting to the power of God's Holy Spirit to be transformed so I can stay in the truth, walking in the light. Then, according to God, we need to spread that message around. We're coming up to the Christmas season I try to avoid it, <clears throat> plus I'm too cheap to buy TV, um, and so I don't really watch the news, but when I do, it paints a very bleak picture of the world that's out there starving for hope. We're coming up on this anniversary where we celebrate the coming of the Jesus, which is really cool that he was born, but he came to die, and that message is more needed now than any other time I can think of. Now, it's always been needed, for sure. But I look out and I see this disillusion of truth and people struggling for anything, any kind of hope they can find to hang on to, and I have it, and I'm stingy with it. The world desperately needs the gospel. And we're coming up to this Christmas time when God said, this is the mystery. I've had this plan all along and you haven't really understood it. But here comes the baby Jesus and he's coming to die for your sins. Spread the message around. Let's pray. Father God, we just um, thank you for the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit to change us and the love that you would do it in the first place. Lord, help us to embrace the truth, to know the truth, to love the truth, and sacrifice ourselves to the truth that we now belong to you so that we can enjoy koinonia with you and all your people. And this I pray for in Jesus' name, amen.